only one, Emily's a cop bully. There's only one, Emily's a cop bully. Walking along, singing a song, hearing Emily's a cop Welcome to today's discussion at the Soccer Studies Faculty here at SMU, where Martin, our sub-dean, tells me his years of patient research have finally identified the two most important football matches of all time. A bold claim, certainly, but there again, Martin is nothing if not bold. Or perhaps just wildly reckless. Well, you can be the judge. I sometimes think that the sheer originality of my work unnerves you. Well, I'm certainly nervous about much of your output, but not necessarily on the grounds of originality. But enough of this idle banter. Do I take it that we're in for one of your flights of football history fancy? I'm going to keep you guessing. Now, here's a question for you. What are the two most important football matches ever? <laughs> you really are a frustrated quizmaster, aren't you? Is it because you didn't make the South Mims use University Challenge team as an undergraduate? You've never got over being deprived of your moment in the sun with its famous host, Bamba Gascoigne. A man for all seasons. A critic. A writer. And, as one presenter put it after his death, no quiz host has ever seen more likely they could answer all the questions themselves. And I wonder if Mr Gascoigne could have answered the question at the heart of this podcast. Name the two most important football matches ever played. Mm. Well, why don't you try? Well, as a Spurs fan, I suppose I'd have to choose winning the FA Cup in 1961 against Leicester and thereby clinching the first double of the 20th century. Mm. But then again, I could also say winning the Cup in 1901 was more important and we won it against Sheffield United. Of course, Spurs were then a non-league team and without that Cup win... Who knows what might have become of them? Well, they certainly wouldn't have ended up as a football club with its own stadium microbrewery. <laughs> I, know, I know that sounds pretentious, and probably is pretentious, but the beer is actually very nice. Mm, in, indeed, I'm sure it is. But think a bit more objectively. Think football as a whole. OK, um, well, I'll go for the 1966 World Cup final, obviously. That was a real springboard for English football. And uh, the other one, uh, 1953 England v Hungary, the 6-3 match, as that really woke up the English game to the march of that Europe was stealing on it at the time. Yes, good choices, especially that first defeat to foreign opposition on home soil. But Martin, you know what I'm going to say now though, don't you? That defeat by the magnificent Magyars wasn't really the first defeat of England by, the, by a foreign team. I'd say the first one was the 2-0 loss to the Republic of Ireland in 1949 at Goodison Park. You really do like getting the upper hand, don't you? Uh, yes, I do. And I manage it so often. It's practically second nature to me. A sort of unconscious superiority. But do continue, Martin. Oh, well, thank you. I shall. In fact, I'll say good effort with those two matches. But actually, you're wrong. Let me answer the question slightly cryptically. Ebenezer Cobb Morley. Very cryptic. The name, though, uh, it does ring a bell. Then keep ringing it. Actually, yes, it's a name that's always struck me as so wonderfully Dickensian. If Dickens had written about football, Ebenezer Cobb Morley would be the first name on the team sheet. A goalkeeper, I think. There's only one Ebenezer Cobb Morley. There's only one Ebenezer Cobb Morley. 
walking along, singing a song in the I like that. Sometimes I could almost mistake you to be a man of letters. Seriously, wasn't he one of those wonderful Victorian Corinthian sportsmen? I know, yes. A solicitor by day and founder and captain of Barnes FC when he wasn't lawyering. He was actually one of the founding fathers, if that doesn't sound too grand, of the Football Association. You're right. In indeed, he was. A founding father of modern football, I think we can say. He founded Barnes FC in 1862, and it was only their second match that proved such a turning point. It was December 1862, and Barnes were playing Blackheath FC, who played what we would recognise today as more of a rugby union style of football. The two clubs played to what could be said to be a set of compromise rules, which, as far as Blackheath were concerned, allowed hacking. In other words, merrily kicking your opponent in the shins. <laughs> what, like uh, 1980s Wimbledon? Or most Italian teams from the 1950s to the 1970s? Very droll. Uh, quite true, I suppose, but amusing nonetheless. Well, the upshot was a 2-0 defeat for Barnes. And as you can imagine, Morley was very unhappy. Since not only had he been hacked from all directions, he found himself just avoiding being garroted by a high tackle around the neck. So I imagine he decided to pick up his ball and go off and write his own set of rules. More than that, he decided to propose the formation of a governing body for football that would set and be the custodian of a common set of rules. Sure enough, a meeting of 11 interested clubs took place at the Freemasons Tavern in Hoburn on 26th of October 1863, and the Football Association, the FA, was formed. Think of it, all because of a spot of hacking during the Barnes and Blackheath tussle. I can certainly see why you say it's one of the most important matches ever, but what's your second? All in good time. Tension and expectation have to be built first. Oh, expectation? Oh, you're getting Dickensian yourself now. But it is a fascinating story, and whatever we say about the men in blazers and the absurdity of the FA's out-of-touch approach to so many things over the years, without it, we really wouldn't have the world game as we know it. I appreciate that Scottish teams, especially Queen's Park and Scottish coaches, can justifiably lay claim to shaping the modern laws and tactics of football, but the roots of so much that football holds dear can be traced back to the very fact of the formation of a football association in itself in the first place. That's almost poetic, and certainly true. Morley was in fact elected the first secretary of the FA. At the same time, I don't think we can overlook the others who were present at that meeting. There were 15 of them altogether, Renaissance sportsmen, we might call them. Five of them, including Morley himself, with strong rowing connections, many of them keen cricketers. Talking of poetry, just think of the roll call of names of the 11 clubs at that first meeting. Barnes, Civil Service, Crusaders, Forest of Leightonstone, later renamed as Wanderers FC, NN, which is No Names Club of Kilburn, Crystal Palace, Blackheath, Kensington School, Percival House, Blackheath, Surbiton FC, Blackheath Proprietary School. It really was another world. I bet the great and the good from those clubs couldn't have imagined we'd end up with English football matches being watched live in most countries of the world 
on a variety of newfangled devices. Not to mention three lines on a shirt and, of course, professional women's football. Well, for some of them, even the thought of professional men's football was enough to produce palpitations. It's strange, you know, but of those 11 clubs, only Civil Service FC remains as an original, continuously existing club. Some of the others have simply disappeared or moved to the rugby union fold, while others have been reformed. Crystal Palace, of course, and Wanderers, a relatively recent revival coming back through Sunday League football. And although Crusaders, Surbiton and Charterhouse were all at that first meeting, they didn't attend subsequently, and in the case of Charterhouse, didn't even sign up to join. And, and so they don't get included in the early tally of 11. That's quite right. Instead, there were replacement clubs that quickly came in. The Royal Navy School, Wimbledon School and Forest School. Now, I hope you'll forgive me in lingering on that last name, but it's my own alma mater, and Forrest has been a member of the FA since the fifth meeting in December 1863. Yes, I've always thought it remarkable that Forrest remains the only school side to have competed in the FA Cup. Yes, I mean, there have been other boys' teams, of course, Oldertonians, Old Carthusians, indeed Old Foresters, but no other actual schools. Well, do you know there's actually a piece of grassland in front of the school that can justifiably claim to have been a genuine cradle of the game? It's where Forest of Leytonstone, later to be, as you've said, Wanderers FC, where they played. And their driving force, of course, was Charles Alcock, architect of the FA Cup and brother of John Forster Alcock, who was the Forest of Leytonstone representative at that first meeting. Right. And when this embryonic FA did get a set of draft rules, later to become rather grandly laws of football, there were two rules that caused division. One was allowing running with the ball in the hand, and the other was permitting the obstructing of a run holding the ball by hacking, tripping and holding. When those rules weren't confirmed and adopted, Blackheath withdrew and, with others, formed the Rugby Football Union in 1871. Yes, and by January 1864, the Football Association only had nine members. It's worth, I think, a roll call of those names. Barnes, No Names Kilburn, Crystal Palace, War Office, which is the, the civil service, Forest Club of Leytonstone, Forest School, Sheffield, Uppingham and Royal Engineers Chatham. All of which now brings me to my second match. My guess is that your second has something to do with the new rules. You really do know me too well. The FA's plan was to have the very first match with the new rules at Battersea Park on 2nd of January 1864. But so keen were they, they just couldn't wait. Oh, well, no, no, I've got it, I've got it. The match is the first one under FA rules, and I seem to remember that it was played at Mortlake in December 1863 between Barnes FC, captained naturally by Morley, and Richmond FC. You're spot on with the details, but no, it's not actually my second choice. That match was a, a goalless draw as it happens, and Richmond weren't even members of the FA. They didn't like the rules, they went off in a huff to become one of the founders of the Rugby Football Union. Right, I know, yes, you've gone for the Battersea Park match. Understandable, given that it was the first exhibition match that employed the FA rules. Yes, that, that's absolutely right. Played in fact, on the 9th of January, not the 2nd of January, 1864, two teams were the president of the FA's team and that of the secretary. Most of the sport's best players actually took part and the aftermatch toast, which I always think was rather splendid, was to success to football, irrespective of class or creed. 
If ever there was a landmark match, I have to say you're right, Martin. That was it. Everything else follows from that match. Well, in footballing terms, the FA's founders were certainly men of vision, no matter how reactionary the FA has shown itself to be at times afterwards. But what about the men themselves? You've looked at them, I think. I have indeed. And what a fascinating bunch they are. Just five of them were from London. Others were from India, Australia and the US. Yes, I, I seem to remember that Arthur Pember, the FA's first president, had himself emigrated to the US and become an investigative journalist. And to highlight just a few of the others, if I may, Frederick Moore of Blackheath had been born in Perth, Australia and spent most of his life in New Zealand, Tasmania and Sydney which is in Australia. Herbert Stewart of Crusaders was an architect and president of Leander, the famous rowing club. Meanwhile, George Shillingford of Percival House School in Blackheath spent most of his life in Bengal, where he and his brothers ran an indigo plantation and unfortunately were responsible for hunting the Bengal tiger practically to extinction. <laughs> well, a fascinating, but perhaps not a pleasant bunch after all. Well, they were of their times. They were of their times. And full of surprises. Well, a little like me, really. That sounds ominous. What have you got in mind? Well, there's another early match that we haven't mentioned, and which I have up the sleeve of my rather grand PhD gown. You have to rub that in, don't you? All right, then. What, what match is it? It's the contest that took place in March 1866 and described by your very own soccer doyen, Charles Alcock, as the match that was, and I quote, first of any importance under the auspices of the Football Association. It was London v Sheffield, with a representative team from the FA playing Sheffield FC, usually regarded as the world's oldest football club under FA rules. Go on then, please enlighten us as to its significance. At the time, there was a real tussle between the respective rules of the London-based FA and the Sheffield Football Association. Between 1866 and 1877, the two rival associations played 16 inter-association matches under different rules. The FA rules, the Sheffield rules and a mixed rules. It was only the great buy-in into the FA Cup that brought a realisation that one agreed set of rules or laws was needed. Finally, in April 1877, an agreed set of laws were concluded with a number of Sheffield rules being incorporated. That's particularly interesting. Uh, certainly the, the 1872 founded FA Cup was originally very much the preserve of mainly southern amateur teams. And it was really only during the 1880s that the altogether more organised northern clubs began to dominate. Yes, here we are really touching on something we've discussed in an earlier podcast, the influence of Scotland. The public school sides had tended to play a dribbling game marked by violent tackling. But a new passing style developed in Scotland was taken on by Lancashire teams and Blackburn Olympic reached the FA Cup final in March 1883, where they defeated Old Etonians. And don't forget that at the same time we've got the rise of the professional game. The other Blackburn team, Blackburn Rovers, were the first to start paying players and no doubt as a result, won the FA Cup three years running. Do you know, the FA actually tried to ban professionalism, but faced with a breakaway league and breakaway governing body, it had to allow payments being made to players. Northern clubs were very much the drivers by now 
and it was in 1888 that the Football League was established, founded, worth noting I think, by 12 professional clubs, six from the northwest of England and six from the Midlands, so no southern representatives at all. Right, <laughs> and a breakaway league? We certainly couldn't imagine that now, could we? Now, before you answer that, Martin, I think it's time for us to uh, thank our dear listeners and to say goodbye. And please check out the other football podcasts on South Mims U. Goodbye. There's only one Emily's a cop bully. There's only one Emily's a cop bully. Walking along, singing a song, hearing Emily's a cop bully.